Chapter 15 of A Book of English Martyrs. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nathan Swift. A Book of English Martyrs by E. M. Wilmot Buxton. Chapter 15 Strength and Weakness. 1595. Great hope for the Catholic faith in England. I could wish myself there. Letter of Father Henry Walpole from Belgium. In the year that saw the martyrdom of Father Southwell, there was executed at York another priest to the Society of Jesus. Fourteen years earlier, Henry Walpole, a young man of three and twenty, and a promising lawyer of Gray's Inn, had been one of those who pressed closest to the scaffold on which blessed Edmund Campion was speaking his last words on earth. When the executioner had finished his bloody work and flung Campion's quarters into the cauldron that was simmering hard by, the blood spurted out upon Henry Walpole and bespattered his garment. The beating heart of the young enthusiast throbbed with a new emotion. Every impulse of horror and indignation stirred within him, and it seemed that there had come to him a call from heaven to take up the work that had been so cruelly cut short and to follow the path which Campion had trodden. From that moment, his course was determined on, and from that day, he resolved to devote himself to the cause for which Edmund Campion had died. In these words, does Canon Jessup, in his most interesting account of our martyr, one generation of a Norfolk house, tell the story of the call of another ardent, sensitive soul to the martyr band. In those days, his enthusiasm led him to the point of rashness. His verses upon the death of Campion were everywhere bought up. A large following of young men were said to have been converted by him, and his refusal to take the oath of allegiance finally brought the pursuivants down upon him. It was feared that this would bring his relatives, a well-known Catholic family of Norfolk, into trouble, and forthwith young Walpole set out for the continent to Dewey into the English college at Rome, and finally, in 1584, was admitted to the Society of Jesus. Four years later, he was ordained priest, 1588 and seems to have won high esteem from the authorities for his learning and powers of preaching. It was during this year, when his eyes were beginning to turn longingly back to his native land, that Father Walpole began to get news of the successful work carried on by that gallant adventurer in the cause of Christ, Father John Gerard. By him, his cousin, Edward Walpole, now a large landholder, and formerly content with merely abstaining from the services of the established church, had been converted into an ardent Catholic. Nearer still to the exile's heart was his own young brother, Michael, ever restless and adventurous of soul, who, after watching the deportment of the gay and fearless young priest, who literally held his life in his hand, threw in his lot with him with all the enthusiasm of a generous-hearted youth. When Father Walpole had left England, Richard, another of his six brothers, had followed hard upon his steps and had been enrolled in the English College in 1584, and a third, Christopher Walpole was the next to give in his adhesion to the faith under the influence of Gerard. It only needed the news that Father Henry Walpole had been arrested at Flushing and was lying there in peril of his life to make another enthusiastic Catholic of Thomas, a fifth brother, so that in 1589, five out of the six sons of Christopher Walpole of Anmer Hall were ready to stand shoulder to shoulder in defense of the faith. It was young Michael who undertook the dangerous task of traveling to Flushing and obtaining his brother's release, for Flushing was held at that time by a garrison of Englishmen, commanded by a nephew of Leicester 
and it was in the performance of his duties as a priest among the Catholic soldiers that Father Henry had been seized and flung into the filthy common prison among the vilest criminals. By Michael's efforts, he was released at length on payment of a ransom, having learnt, as he says, during his imprisonment, to know better both God, the world, and himself. For the next two years, he was again actively engaged upon the Jesuit mission in Belgium among the soldiers of the Spanish camps as well as among the large numbers of English refugees who had settled in that country. It was an important work, by no means free from danger, as he had already proved, and the interest and excitement must have been very pleasant to his type of mind. Moreover, during these two years, his fervent prayers to God and letters to his family were answered, for his brother Michael had now joined Richard at the English College, together with his cousin Edward Walpole. Christopher was at Dewey, and Thomas had also crossed over to Belgium and obtained a commission in the Spanish army. But the soul of Father Walpole was not yet satisfied. His eyes still turned longingly to his own land and to the old home where his father, mother, and sisters yet lived, together with Geoffrey, the stolid, apathetic second son, who never seemed to have been stirred in conscience or wished to suffer for the faith. Gerard doeth much good, writes the young priest wistfully to a friend. If only he might be sent to work and suffer by his side. And then again he writes, Great hope for the Catholic faith of England. I could wish myself there if it were answerable. But he had still to wait and possess his soul in patience, first at Ternay, then at Bruges where amongst other work he translated into English the famous Philopater document, the clever cynical pamphlet written by Father Parsons, which attacked Cecil as the real author of the Catholic persecution in England. Scarcely was it finished when he was summoned to join its author at the New England Seminary at Seville. There, and again at Valladolid, he came under the close scrutiny of that master mind. The Father Parsons was not slow to mark both his strength and his weakness. Suddenly came the question, would he go into England? Yes, without a moment's doubt or hesitation, though a thousand edicts threaten, a thousand deaths deter. Gerard doeth much good, why not I? But months of delay followed his arrival at St. Omer, for the plague was raging in London, and he could get no chance of a passage to Calais to Dover. His brother Thomas, had thrown up his commission by the time and had joined him on the route, together with another priest and a soldier of fortune named Lincoln. Weary of waiting for an ordinary transit boat, this little band determined to secure a passage on one of these small pirate ships found lying in Dunkirk Harbor and went aboard one stormy December night in high spirits, knowing nothing of the fact that a fifth man, who had stealthily slipped aboard one of the other ships, was one of Walsingham spies who had for some time been watching their every moment. They had a fearful passage and being carried far past Norfolk where Father Walpole hoped to land were presently off the coast of Yorkshire. There was nothing for it but to disembark there and hope for the best. As this they did, still ignorant of the fact that the sinister figure of the spy had managed to land before them and had hurried hot foot to York to lay information of the probable approach of a Jesuit priest straight from Spain. It was on a wild and dark December night that Father Walpole set foot on the unfriendly soil of Yorkshire and buried for safety in the sand the packet of letters he had brought with him. 
utterly ignorant of their whereabouts and with no settled plans to guide them the two brothers and their friend committed the fatal blunder of keeping together instead of promptly separating and after wandering through the woods or hiding in a barn all that night sought food and shelter at the village inn of killam some nine miles from the coast Within a few hours, the news of the arrival of three strangers in drenched foreign dress was spread far and wide. The constables were at once on the track, and the sunset of the next day saw all three exiles committed to the castle prison in York. Here was notable work for Lord Huntingdon, and his success was beyond his expectations. It is true that Father Walpole, having one confessed himself a Jesuit, kept obstinate silence as to matters which affected the lives of others and that Lingen followed his example. But to the dismay of his companions, young Thomas Walpole, having no strong religious convictions and not minded to run any risk for having served on the Spanish side of Belgium, at once told all he knew, and not only dug up the packet of letters hidden by Father Henry, but took pains to identify another returning priest on his arrival, and so became the means of getting him sent to the tower. They were surely of mixed qualities, these Walpoles, for their zeal and readiness to take up a losing cause was often tempered with a sensitive dread of pain and loss, which led in this case to something like apostasy, and in that of poor Father Walpole to a lapse for which we can but feel the tenderest pity and sympathy, and which was nobly atoned for by his heroic death. At first Huntingdon hoped to win over the elder brother by means more suave than threats, there were at york at that time a group of apostate priests whom fear of prison and death had prevailed upon to recant and to give information as to their former associates it was arranged that these gentlemen should hold public disputations with father walpole but as the only effect was to gain for the jesuit from the populace a reputation for learning and devoted piety they were hastily stopped and the three men were put on their trial their first examination was at the hands of Topcliffe himself, who writes exultingly to the Queen as to the success he had had with young Thomas, who had in fact already told all he knew, but quite otherwise of Father Henry and Lingen. The Jesuit and Lingen must be dealt with in some sharp sword alone, and more will burst out than yet, or otherwise, can be known. Meantime, from his dismal cell, the lonely priest has found means to write and receive letters from his friends, and his words are somewhat wistful and pathetic in tone, especially when we recall what was to happen a few months later. Your reverence's letters give me great comfort, but if I could see you, though it were but for one hour, it would be of greater service to me than I could possibly express. I hope that what is wanting my sweet Lord Jesus will supply by other means whose heavenly comfort and assistance has always hitherto stood by me in my greatest necessities, and I am persuaded will continue to do so, since his love for us is everlasting. Then, referring to his examination, he says, I told them I returned into England with a very great desire of the conversion, not only of the people, but most of all, the queen herself, and of the whole English nobility, which I plainly assure them I should ever use my best endeavors to bring about with the grace of God. To their queries concerning others, I refused to answer, and when Topcliffe threatened that he would make me answer when he had me in Bridewell or in the tower, I told him that our Lord God, I hoped, would never permit me, for fear of any torments whatsoever, to do anything against his divine majesty 
or against my own conscience, or to the prejudice of justice and the innocence of others. The whole letter breathes a spirit of almost childlike simplicity, faith, and readiness to suffer, together with a curious undercurrent of self-distraughtfulness and even uneasiness as to whether what he had said to his enemies had been altogether wise, as though in fact he would have been glad of reassurance from his superior on these points. As to another matter, just at this time he was equally full of scruples. His many friends outside were eager to formulate a plan of escape for him, but the gentle young priest was doubtful both as to the nature of the risk to be run and even more as to his right to try thus to invade martyrdom. He managed to get through the prison gates a letter from the Jesuit father Holtby, who a second Gerard was passing unscathed through daily risk of detection and had managed to establish a correspondence with the prisoner in the castle. Knowing probably his lack of the nerve and cunning necessary to such an undertaking, Father Holtby advised him not to attempt the escape, and he readily agreed. But the time of real trial was now hard at hand. In 1594, a pretended plot to assassinate Elizabeth had been fastened on a certain Portuguese named Lopez. The queen's physician, who was said to be in the pay of Spain, Lopez, probably an innocent victim of the headstrong zeal and suspicion of the Earl of Essex, was put to death, and the whole affair became a convenient peg upon which Topcliffe might hang a Jesuit priest come straight from Spain. Hurrying him from York, Topcliffe soon had Father Walpole committed to the tower, where Philip Howard still lay, and Father Southwall, his fellow Jesuit, with whom he left no stone unturned to establish communication during the two months of solitary confinement that elapsed before his examination. When this began, though faced with the horrors of the torture chamber, the replies of the prisoner were firm enough. He frankly owned to facts that were already known or which referred to people safe across the sea. But when pressed to name the forty young Englishmen then studying at the Valladolid Seminary, or any Englishman with whom he had intercourse at Dunkirk or on his arrival, he was absolutely silent. It was the same on the days that followed. In the record of the questions asked again and again, the clerk noted down as his answer, he knoweth but refuseth to disclose. He was now utterly in Topcliffe's power. The rack and the manacles were ready. Let him speak, the stubborn Jesuit, who knew so much. Speak or hang till life shall be only horrible torment. But still he would not open his mouth, though the examination was only ended by his fainting with agony under the torture. In the lonely cell in the salt tower that must have seemed like heaven after the chamber of horrors, the Jesuit priest spent the long hours in drawing pictures of saints and angels in chalk upon the walls and in carving his name upon the stones, where it may yet be seen. Father Gerard, his successor there, in later days thus describes the spot. The next day I examined the place, for there was some light, though dim, and I found the name of Father Henry Walpole, of blessed memory, cut with a knife on the wall, and not far from there I found his oratory, which was a space where there had been a narrow window, now blocked up with stones. There he had written on either side with chalk the names of the different choirs of angels, and on top, above the cherubim and seraphim, the name of the Mother of God, and above that again in Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, the name of God. 
He adds words at whose import we can but shudder. It was truly a great consolation to me to find myself in this place, hallowed by the presence of so great and so devoted a martyr, the place, too, in which he was frequently tortured, to the number, as I have heard, of fourteen times. Probably they were unwilling to torture him in public and in the ordinary place because they did it oftener than they would have it known. The suggestion in the light of what followed is truly horrible. Did Topcliffe, during these June days, deal with this helpless victim, unchecked by observers, according to his wicked will? It seems so, for on the 13th of the month he had managed to extort a written confession, which, after all, betrays nobody and tells nothing that was not already known to the government. But that his splendid courage is broken is seen by the pathetic appeal for mercy with which it ends, an appeal from a heart wrung with despair at its own weakness. I desire that this act be concealed till it shall please the council to dispose of me howsoever to the honors shall seem most to the good of the realm and service of her majesty, whom I do beseech upon my knees to take pity upon a miserable prisoner and offender. Yet now resolve to employ all my forces to her majesty's service and to conform myself ever as it shall please her majesty to appoint me. But still they had not learnt all they wished to know, the names of the seminarists abroad, the names of priest harborers at home, and it was only after another night of horror that this information was extracted from him. What refinement of torture was employed, or what agony of remorse followed these revelations? We can but surmise when we read that in the same document he declares his readiness to go to the church, though he adds immediately, and there preach only such doctrine as my conscience doth tell me, to be manifestly deduced out of the word of God, ending with a brave attempt to regain his self-respect. In the significant words, so that it be without prejudice to the Catholic faith, which I ever profess, let us not presume to judge this man of nervous, highly sensitive mind and body, who under physical agony, such as we cannot even imagine, was forced to declare things for which in saner moments he would have died rather than reveal. Death indeed was a light thing compared to daily torture, and death he would have been ready to face with courage. But the worst part of the story is to come. That he had not yet betrayed anything of great importance is proved by the fact that for the next few months he was left entirely in Topcliffe's hands to do with as he pleased. What happened exactly we cannot tell. The secret is well kept by those grim gray stones of the tower cell, but we do know that in July 1594 he was able to write the hand of an educated man, and that at the end of his nine months' imprisonment, when some notes of meditations written by him in prison had come into the possessions of Father Gerard, the latter says of them, I could scarcely read them at all, not because they were written hastily, but because the hand of the writer could not form the letters. It seemed more like the first attempts of a child than the handwriting of a scholar and a gentleman such as he was. What put an end to this dark period of failure of body and soul is not quite certain. It seems clear that his admission that he had translated Parson's pamphlet ridiculing Cecil was enough to sign his death warrant at Lord Burley's hands. Moreover, in the January of 1595, a Jesuit priest, who had been captured in the act of taking over six boys to the Spanish seminary, 
had managed to outwit the government and, under the appearance of a Napolitan merchant, to get exchanged for an English prisoner of war. In their annoyance and irritation, when they found that they had let a Jesuit missionary slip through their fingers, the council called upon Tocliffe for advice, who reminded them that they had two notable Jesuits still lying in the tower, Father Southwell for nearly three years, Father Walpole for fifteen months. To make an example of these might terrorize the rest of the society, since no Jesuit had been actually executed since the days of Campion, thirteen years before. So since Father Walpole had been taken at York, he was sent thither against the stand to bitter mockery in the trial which, be it as remembered, he had never yet been allowed. His answers on the occasion show that if he had fallen with St. Peter, he had indeed not only repented with him, but was prepared to bear the most distinct witness to the faith of his church. For towards the end of a long accusation, most ably refuted by him, the Lord President said to him, We deal very favorably with you, Mr. Walpole, when notwithstanding all these treasons and conspiracies with the persons aforesaid, we offer you the benefit of the law, if you will, but make the submission ordered by law, which, if you will not accept of, it is proper you should be punished according to the law. To which Father Walpole replied, There is nothing, my lord, in which I would not most willingly submit myself, provided it be not against God. But may his divine majesty never suffer me to consent to the least thing by which he may be dishonored. As to the queen, I every day pray for her to the Lord God that he would bless her with his Holy Spirit. And God is my witness that to all here present, and particularly to my accusers and to such as desire my death, I wish, as to myself, the salvation of their souls, and that to this end they may live in the true Catholic faith, the only way to eternal happiness. When Father Walpole was removed to his condemned cell, he thought that the end was close at hand, and writing to Father Holtby, he says with touching humility, I am to be executed tomorrow. Pray therefore to our God that he may be my helper in the last conflict that I have to sustain for the glory of his name and for the edification of his church. I tell you, he adds, nothing of all that passed during the year's detention in the Tower of London. I hold my peace, too, on many other details. You will know them in heaven when we shall see each other again. Let this letter, written in haste, but with cordial affection, suffice. It is time for me to lay my pen aside, to employ myself only in prayer to the great God, for whom I am fighting the good fight, with whom I hope to be face to face on the morrow. Even now, however, he was not left at peace, for the judges insisted on another public disputation being held on the Sunday following. Monday, April 17, 1595, was the actual date of the martyrdom. And for an account of this, we go to the record of Father Holtby, who speaks first to the self-inflicted penance undergone by the priest before his death. He was very austere to himself after his coming out of the tower. At night he lay upon the stones unless he leaned upon his elbow. And he that lay in the chamber with him did affirm that he never wakened, but he heard the father either pray or sigh. With him suffered a seminary priest named Alexander Rawlings, whose death it was hoped might terrorize Father Walpole into giving way. Some gentlemen of position indeed seemed most anxious to save the latter, for when, in answer to the usual question, he replied that he would gladly pray for Elizabeth, whom he honored as his queen. They ran to the president with the news, 
But Huntington, with his evil smile, bade them ask if he would so do if the Pope forbade it, upon which he answered, he might not, nor would not. Even up to the last moment, both enemies and well-wishers tormented him with questions, which perhaps he bore the more meekly, because he regarded them as a penance for his past weakness. Then at length the end came. His last prayer was Pastor Noster, as he was beginning Eva Maria. When they turned him over the ladder, they let him hang until he was dead. And thus, by a steadfast faith in death, Father Henry Walpole atoned for the mistakes and lapses of past days, finding at the moment of death a judge more merciful than those of us who would blame a man for failing always to stand upright under a test from which the bravest men will shrink and fall. With him we end for the present our story of the martyrs of the 16th century, though four and twenty more were to suffer before that century was complete. But perhaps it is as well that we should close this book with the life of Father Walpole, fresh in remembrance, lest familiarity with the details of martyrdom make us forget all that it meant to those who suffered. For they were men and women, not unlike ourselves. They loved their lives, they rejoiced in the sunshine and the joy of living just as we do, and were not made of stuff that feels no pain and no regrets. So much the more than do we owe them veneration and honor, since all that they accomplished was done, not by their own superior force or will or physical endurance, but by their swift and eager correspondence with the grace of God. Blessed English martyrs, pray for the author, the illustrator, the publishers, and the readers of this book. Amen. End of chapter 15. End of A Book of English Martyrs by E.M. Wilmot Buxton.